and welcome to Power Problems. I'm John Glazer. My guest today is Elsa Kania, adjunct senior fellow for the Center for New American Security. Elsa, welcome to the show. Thank you. I'm happy to be here and I'll say to start my views are my own and I'm very much looking forward to the conversation. Well, thanks so much. So you're a security analyst. Uh, you study international relations, but you also have an expertise in artificial intelligence. And this is a field that most of the public doesn't understand very well, but it's become increasingly a part of the public discourse. I kind of wonder what you think about all that. There's been kinds of, you know, there's been open letters and calls for a, a global pause and development. There's some serious concerns about how to align AI with human values to potentially avoid big problems. As someone who researches AI and kind of knows it in and out, how does all this kind of public discussion uh, land with you about AI in general? So I'll say to start, I'm not a technical expert in artificial intelligence. So I approach these issues as a perpetual student and with a curiosity and openness to learning and changing my mind along the way. And I think what has been sometimes frustrating about the public discourse on AI of late is it tends towards hyperbole and it tends towards catastrophic outlooks when a lot of the near-term problems that we're facing are already quite real and urgent. So some of the letters warning of the risks of extinction or framing artificial intelligence as an existential threat to humanity brings the conversation into the realm seemingly of science fiction when, as we can all see on a day-to-day -day basis, AI and the range of applications that it enables are already very real and present and causing problems for safety and security, as well as concerns from a society societal perspective in terms of equity, bias, uh, human prejudices being codified in algorithms that then perpetuate discrimination and inequities. So I think there's, I think there is a tendency in, in media and sometimes even from leading figures in the field to talk about the most extreme scenarios as if they are plausible in the near term when, a, when I, a, much of the AI ethics community is focused on near term harms and in the context of national security, we are seeing of practical applications for artificial intelligence play out in the real world already beyond uh, fears of killer robots and seeing real and consequential implications for the future of warfare and defense. So I think there's definitely, this is an issue where the frontier of what is possible is constantly changing. And I think for all of us, whether as citizens or, or specialists in our various uh, Various domains have to continue learning and continue interrogating how how the trajectory of technological development and uh, ramifications we're seeing around us are playing out day by day. Let me pull on one of those threads that you mentioned. Can you talk in broad terms about how you think AI is advancing and how it will be applied by states in their national security policies? What kind of impacts can we expect in the coming decades? So. Artificial intelligence is a technology that's enabling 
insight and progress across any number of domains and applications. And the most prominent of late has been with ChatGPT and the capacity for chatbots to serve as personal assistants, to generate uh, very realistic text. And we've seen applications in deepfakes, synthetic media, and otherwise. And a lot of this is generated debate about sort of near-term social risks and impacts, whether that is in fraud or disinformation. In the context of defense, so large language models like ChatGPT are starting to get attention, including in, in the context of intelligence analysis or concerns about disinformation and otherwise, but we've also seen some of the distinct limitations of these technologies when it comes to the propensity of ChatGPT, for instance, to hallucinate or to come up with false information or insights that are derived from sort of a randomness in its in its own training or idiosyncrasies in the model. So I think there's definitely some of the most prominent topics in the public debate, I think, are still still a ways from being fully reliable when it comes to more risky applications. When it comes to the military and national defense, a lot of the near-term applications are practical, are automating tasks where humans, which are currently completed by humans in ways that can be tedious and time-consuming and increasing efficiency. So analysis of imagery, of large amounts of data, potentially applications in target recognition as well in some cases, or when it comes to identifying specific items in, in satellite imagery or sorting through the massive amounts of data that uh, military organizations and bureaucracies are forced to grapple with. And a lot, of, a lot of process improvements as well are a major concern. So we are seeing militaries look at current trends and applications of artificial intelligence that are playing out, for instance, in commercial enterprises and starting to apply and explore applications of this, whether in process improvement or greater autonomy in unmanned systems or enhancing domain awareness, really just as artificial intelligence in society can be applied across just about any any application imaginable. So, so too, in defense, there is a lot of so any domain of warfare or any category of military application will have some element of the of the process where machine learning or artificial intelligence generally speaking can be applicable at least in increasing efficiency and enhancing capacity beyond beyond some of the limitations that come with human factors but at the same time, militaries are looking further into the future. And in the case of the uh, Chinese military, for instance, seeing artificial intelligence in the aggregate as enabling a revolution in military affairs, as building upon the foundation of information technology and creating new potential for speed, for superiority and decision making, for weapon systems, including hypersonic weapons with 
greater degrees of autonomy and for applications of concern like swarming, like AI enable, enabling of information operations, whether cyber or electronic warfare. So there's really a disparate series of domains and applications and what that, uh, what that adds up to in the totality, I think, remains to be seen and will depend a lot on how different organizations, whether civilian or military, prioritize and their capacity to implement and have some uptake of, of progress that is very promising, but often raises concerns about uh, security re- reliability and consistency as well. You've said in a previous interview that AI could disrupt the current military balance while exacerbating threats to strategic stability, and that the increased complexity that AI will introduce into the, into military affairs can increase the risks of an accident or unintended engagement. Can you explain how? So there is a fair amount of interest from multiple militaries worldwide in developing and deploying unmanned or autonomous systems, or systems that are remotely operated and have varying degrees of autonomy in their operations. We've seen this from the PLA, the U.S. military, the Russian military, the Israeli and other militaries. Just about every major military power sees robotics and autonomy as consequential to have a speed, flexibility, endurance, and perhaps precision that can exceed that of current manned or human-occupied and operated platforms. At the same time, just as we've seen accidents or incidents with self-driving cars, for instance, failing to recognize a pedestrian or failing to operate as expected under suboptimal conditions in terms of visibility or weather, so too in the context of military applications, there can be there's a need for high levels of testing verification and validation that these systems will perform as expected and that whether that's in navigation or in the potential for target engagement we've seen human mistakes result in tragedies and humans may make mistakes based on our own biases distinct from those that happen with algorithmic judgment but so too once there is more reliance upon artificial intelligence or machine learning in different manifestations across the targeting process and in the operation of complex weapon systems, there is a possibility for accidents that is inherent in that complexity. And as there is a dynamic of arms racing to some extent, not just in the context of artificial intelligence, which is far more far more expansive as a domain of competition, but in the U.S.-China military balance, for instance, in particular, there can be pressure, especially for a military that sees itself as trying to close the gap and catch up with a powerful adversary, as does the Chinese People's Liberation Army, a pr- pressure perhaps to deploy systems that might not be fully reliable or could, could in a crisis or conflict scenario have unintended engagements or or accidents. And we're seeing this play out to some extent in peacetime as the PLA operates drones more regularly around Taiwan as part of its pressure and coercive campaign to 
imposed persistent presence in disputed waters in the South China Sea, and so far the majority of these systems are for reconnaissance and surveillance. Uh, we've seen flashpoints around uh, the seizure or discovery, for instance, of unmanned systems in some cases, but uh, as we've seen with ChatGPT and its hallucinations, or with some of these normal accidents and incidents with algorithms in in industry as well, there is always a risk of unexpected or emergent behavior. And when you combine that risk with the some of the flashpoints we've seen in U.S.-China relations and concerns about potential for accidents that could increase the risks of escalation, I think there definitely are reasons for concern in the long term about strategic stability including and especially as there is at least contemplation of incorporation of some of these technologies and techniques into into the nuclear apparatus, as the PLA rocket force, for instance, has explored applications of artificial intelligence in targeting, early warning, and the PLA generally has explored the utility of artificial intelligence to inform command decision-making and potentially to accelerate decision-making when there's time pressure in in ways that could lead towards more reliance on decision support systems that may not be informed by data that is sufficiently reliable. So I think there's a range of risks and not enough dialogue or engagement so far on how best to understand and start to mitigate these concerns. Um, you've written that certain um, people in the PLA anticipate the approach of a, quote, singularity on the battlefield at which human cognition can no longer keep pace with the speed of decision-making and tempo of combat and, and warfare. Can you explain that a little bit? What's the singularity in this context? Sure. So there is a... Ever since AlphaGo and ever since artificial intelligence has really come into public debate and discourse in China, there has been a lot of interest from scholars, scientists, and strategists within the PLA trying to anticipate what artificial intelligence could mean. Whether we call that uh, military futurism or, in some cases, more more inform informed analysis based on current capabilities and experimentation, the PLA has looked back, for instance, at AlphaGo and its initial defeat of Lisa Dole and the game of Go as a as validating at least the possibility that when it comes to strategy and decision making, with a caveat that uh, game of Go, of course, is a much simpler context than the complexity of an actual battlefield or real-world operational environment, saw that as initially demonstrating that AI agents could outperform humans or could come up with decisions and concepts for operating beyond what even very skilled human players could be capable of. And with the capacity for rapid acceleration of analytics with artificial intelligence, there's a lot of interest in how AI could inform command decision-making and improve situational awareness to, in ways that can help commanders 
choose the right course of action faster and come up with more creative or suitable solutions. And the several PLA thinkers have anticipated that in the long term, the complexity with massive amounts of data in military affairs and the pressures to make decisions faster given given the demands of a crisis or conflict, the result could be to accelerate the tempo of operations in ways that human cognition is simply unable to keep pace with. And that could necessitate a greater reliance upon artificial intelligence. So that is not quite a singularity in a traditional conception of the term, but I think the trend of speed and complexity is seen as meaning that the role of humans will be fundamentally transformed in some respects, and that by necessity, even if humans will will likely remain supreme in decision-making, there'll be a need to depend more on systems for decision support that have greater capacity than, than the human brain in real time. Well, that's rather unsettling. What do you think about uh, the manner in which U.S. policy has tried to cut China off from some of the materials and supplies needed to advance in this area? Is it working? Are there negative externalities or unintended consequences to that approach? I mean, it might frustrate Chinese progress in the short term, but I kind of wonder what it accomplishes over the long term. That would be my concern as well. Chinese leaders believe U.S. policies are tantamount to technological containment and that we are trying to subvert or sabotage China's rise by denying it access to critical technologies that are de facto choke points or strangleholds where American capacity to deny access by China to advanced semiconductors is damaging. And in the near term, as you suggested, there is the potential to inflict considerable pain or inconvenience. In the long term, this is accelerating Chinese efforts in indigenous innovation, as well as uh, beyond investment in research and development, is motivating greater attempts at IP theft in all likelihood, given we've seen the semiconductor industry be a long-term target of cyber and human espionage. And it's difficult to say how long or how difficult exactly it would be for China to close that gap and to have indigenous alternatives to the technologies that uh, American policies are now seeking to deny access to. It may buy time, so to speak, in the near term or sort of force China to reconsider or search for creative solutions when, as opposed to relying upon U.S. origin or U.S.-associated chips. But I am concerned that in a world where there is diffusion of technologies, of knowledge, uh, free flows of ideas and talent, there are certain bottlenecks in terms of hardware. There are certain proprietary elements of the technology ecosystem where the U.S. still has the capacity to impose these controls. And these measures can be more effective when they're multilateral and coordinated with allies and partners. So I think there, there's certainly a pragmatic rationale from a 
security and competitive perspective for putting these measures in place, especially when it comes to concerns about the flows of dual-use technology to the Chinese military. But I think in the long term, China is not backing down when it comes to dedicating the resources, recruiting the talent, and trying to build a more complete ecosystem. And there are some initial indications that's gaining ground, at least in terms of at least in terms of lower end chips and semiconductors that may not quite be on par with the cutting edge, but are good enough for many many mainstream applications. So I think in the long term, China was already on a path towards seeking greater autonomy and self-reliance, as Xi Jinping has emphasized in its technological development. This has really driven home the imperative of that and there are there are, there are ways in which China will struggle to close those gaps or struggle to overcome the restrictions imposed, but there is a consistency and dedication in the efforts to counter that that I think we can't discount in the long term. Um, another piece that you published with uh, CNAS, you wrote the exploration of new paradigms for public-private partnerships will be critical. Uh, and this also, you know, makes us think about China's system versus the U.S.'s system and how these are different. And some people fear that China's ability as an authoritarian regime to capture Internet data and use corporate entities for their data. Uh, some people think that that gives them an advantage and that we should mimic them. And I know you've written uh, some clarifying uh, pieces on that. But can you just talk about how the public-private partnership approach should work and whether you have any concerns about corporate welfare and rent-seeking of the kind that can distort the political process as it often did in the Cold War? So there is a pragmatic necessity given that the focus of innovation in artificial intelligence and other emerging technologies has very often been the tech sector has been private companies that are often multinational or truly global in their scope and applications have really been the center and the focus of, of innovation. And in many respects, the government and the military establishment has been playing catch up. And I think that is true whether we're looking at the, the US or China or any country in the world today that uh, we're seeing much more of innovation driven by commercial enterprises and the scale of their investments and their capacity to deliver unexpected progress, as we've seen with uh, ChatGPT and otherwise, was something that uh, was anticipated, but certainly not, not generated by state action or activity. And the at, at the same time, governments have inherently found it difficult to build sustainable partnerships and relationships with technology companies in terms of acquisitions and in terms of really integrating new capabilities into bureaucratic institutions that are sometimes resistant, resistant to change. In a U.S. context, we've seen a range of defense innovation initiatives, including the Defense Innovation Unit, which has sought to partner with and 
build bridges to Silicon Valley and create new mechanisms to leverage the innovative capabilities available through smaller enterprises and bring that into the Department of Defense. And there have been uh, certainly challenges along the way in that model, but it's been intriguing enough to generate imitators in China, the Agile Innovation Defense Unit that the Central Military Commission's Science and Technology Commission set up in a Chinese context, for instance, that has worked on everything from COVID response to drone swarming. And in in both militaries and really in, in every major institution that is concerned about keeping pace today, the need to build these partnerships has really motivated attempts at creative thinking and solutions to get get along the to get around the longer time frame and difficulty of typical processes but that remains in many respects a work in progress and although china's system and strategy of military civil fusion has sometimes generated envy in the us the irony is that uh Chinese leaders and policymakers have also looked to the U.S. defense industrial base and our national security innovation networks with some envy and sought to emulate that in implementing new programs to open the aperture and ensure that the Chinese military is going beyond traditional state-owned enterprises and more effectively leveraging startups and technology companies in China that are sometimes similarly dynamic to their American counterparts. Uh, I think in each case, there can be complexities when companies are either disinclined to work with the military for ethical or more practical reasons, or when uh, militaries themselves may not be the best partners in terms of their ability to be, be agile and move quickly and provide resources and opportunities to small companies for which uh, time is often a very urgent factor and things happen on a very different time scale. So I think we've seen some progress in terms of experimentation with new models and more flexible processes. We've seen some at least small scale initiatives that have been creative and effective and looked at uh, New, new options beyond traditional acquisitions. So, for instance, uh, Task Force 59 uh, within NavCent has used a COCO model of contractor owned and operated systems to rapidly bring unmanned surface vessels, a de facto fleet of robotic systems, to the Navy's fifth fleet. And that has been able to move more quickly than many comparable programs because of that flexibility and those very close relationships with technology companies that are partners and working hand in hand with uh with with their military counterparts. So I think there's a we've seen small scale successes in the US and similarly we've seen some of these smaller units and contests or challenges or programs in China that are providing more resources and opportunities to Chinese companies that are eager to work with the PLA, but I think in the long term, the common enemy in in any case is bureaucracy and the capacity to implement and scale technologies beyond some of these pilot programs. And that's something that uh, continues to be a source of frustration 
for the PLA and the U.S. military alike at the end of the day. And there are, I think, reasons for concern that the PLA has been able to move more quickly in terms of some of their new programs, initiatives, and investments, and the number of companies within China's tech ecosystem that are starting to engage. I think this is going to be a long-term challenge, and I think still opportunities and difficulties for both militaries as they're trying to adapt to this new status quo. You uh, co-authored a chapter for the Oxford Handbook of AI Governance about how different states are approaching the issue of governance of AI capabilities and autonomous weapon systems. Um, in other words, looking at how states are thinking about fitting AI into international law or war conventions. Uh, what, what did you find in that chapter? Under the auspices of the Convention on Certain Conventional Weapons, Discussions on lethal autonomous weapon systems have convened states and non-state actors or civil society stakeholders and seen a range of degrees of engagement and some consensus about basic principles about safety and ethics, testing, and Concern, concerns about risk mitigation, even when major militaries are unwilling to, to accept substantive constraints on their capacity to develop these capabilities in the long term. How do you uh, think the advancement of AI should impact U.S. grand strategy? And you can answer this in, you know, with whatever you think is most salient, but just as an example, one of the things that made me think of the question was... Um, what you wrote uh, for CNAS several years ago, quote, since China may possess the potential to equal or surpass the United States in this critical technology, the U.S. military must recognize the PLA's emergence as a true peer competitor and reevaluate the nature of U.S.-China military and technological competition. So that might be an example of how we need to alter our approach or strategy given these technologies. And I wonder if you have any more things like that in mind. So I think a reality today that sometimes the United States has been slow or struggling to reckon with is that China has the potential to be a leader, not just a copycat when it comes to artificial intelligence and other emerging technologies that are seen as critical and transformative whether we're talking about quantum computing or biotechnology or beyond at the intersections of many of these interdisciplinary developments, such as quantum artificial intelligence and potential to, to leverage advances in quantum computing to accelerate machine learning in the long term. And I think often aspects of American strategy and policymaking have assumed technological leadership or advantage. If we are no longer in a position where that is enduring or sustainable, and we are at a, at a disadvantage in some respects, whether in terms of quantity of force posture or quality of weapon systems, we have to think more creatively and asymmetrically. There are things perhaps we can learn from the PLA's approach to 
in their efforts seeking to asymmetrically counterbalance a more powerful military. And think of we've there's been a tendency to race and try to contest leadership or maintain a more dominant position at a number of these frontiers, but we've also sometimes been surprised by how quickly China has progressed and how some of their advances have exceeded what we believe to be possible. And some of the reporting on tests of hypersonic weapons, for instance, has illustrated how Chinese capabilities and progression has the potential for surprise or the potential to introduce novel capabilities that will could overcome our existing defenses and countermeasures. So I think there is, on one hand, the need to be more flexible and adaptable and unlearn some of the perhaps wrong lessons we learned from 20 years of conflict where we were operating in relatively uncontested environments and be prepared for much more complex problem sets and rethink the way we are training and preparing for some of those worst case scenarios. I think beyond the context of military affairs, we've continued to see under both recent administrations a recognition of the need to reinvest in our capacity for innovation, whether that is uh, greater funding for research and development, rethinking our approach to talent and workforce, or reinvigorating our relationships and collaborations with allies and partners that have capacity and unique capabilities and resources that we may not in some cases. And I think we've seen a shift in the conversation from simply trying to restrict China's access to technologies or counter IP theft and industrial espionage to being more proactive and more forward thinking and recentering what what capacity we need in the long term technologically as well as uh, the capacity to mobilize and leverage resources in crisis or conflict and there are perhaps lessons to be learned from covid in some respects in terms of public private partnerships and in terms of where systems and processes also broke down and where there was a were difficulties in policy making or issues with trust and consistency. So I think in the long term, uh, I'll steer clear of sort of debates about the precise direction of grand strategy, but I think there are a couple of themes or concerns or just reconceptions of a world that is more complex and where technology can also lead to a leveling and leading small states and non-state actors to have access to capabilities that were once more exquisite in the providence of great powers and at the same time enabling great powers to sometimes wield disproportionate influence. So I think there is a level of complexity and uncertainty that we have to that we have to grapple with and I think the US-China relationship and trajectory of this competition is at the center of those concerns today. Elsa Kania, thank you so much for taking the time today. 